My name is Jose Alvarez. I teach at New York University School of Law. This is the second part of my third lecture on the spaghetti bowl of international investment agreements, in which I will examine the legitimacy deficits of the international investment regime and the reforms being proposed for addressing them. But first, I want to finish uh, with discussing the uh, specific terms inside and the differences between investor rights. We'll start with full protection and security. The right to full protection and security, which many assume to be a reference to an established customary international law protection, is stated differently among international investment agreements. Sometimes it's called full protection and security, sometimes full and complete protection and security, sometimes full and constant protection and security, or most constant protection and security, full protection under the treaty, or full legal security and protection, or adequate protection and security, full protection and security. Each one, uh, and that one, continues in one treaty to say full protection and security requires each party to provide the level of police protection required under customary international law, close quote. For some tribunals, these textual differences, even though they appear small, matters. Thus, the original award in Siemens v. Argentina interpreted the FPS clause before it, which provided full legal security and protection, as designed to go beyond the mere physical protection of property granted under the traditional customary protection of full protection and security. Aware of the broad rulings on full protection and security, the USMCA, like a number of contemporary US international investment agreements, attempts to narrow its coverage by stating that full protection and security requires each party to provide the level of police protection required under customary international law. Look at Article 14.6 2B of the USMCA. Other international investment agreements by other states have done the same. Another example of an FPS clause is a little longer and more complex. Consider this clause, quote, continuous protection and security, i.e., excluding any unjustified or discriminatory measure which could hinder, either in law or in practice, the management, maintenance, use, possession, or liquidation thereof." Close quote. This particular version of an FPS clause embraces protection that seems closer to FET or to clauses banning arbitrary or discriminatory treatment. A clause like that could provide an investor with rights comparable to those secured under such guarantees, even under a bit that does not have a separate FET or a ban on arbitrary or discrimination. Notably, a clause like that, common to bits concluded by the Belgian-Luxembourg Economic Union, even includes, as we've just seen, a specific list of the types of investment activities for management to liquidation to which its FPS protection extends. Another typical bit guarantee is free transfers. The right to transfer funds, while found in virtually all international investment agreements, differs widely in terms of its content and its relevant exceptions. In some cases, free transfers confers such a right only with respect to transferring funds out of the host country by the investor while in other treaties it confers rights in both directions, putting money in as well as taking money out. 
While some international investment agreements only state that free transfers apply to all payments resulting in investment services or to transfers related to, quote, investments, others contain more specific lists stating that they refer to profits, interest, dividends, other current income, payments under a contract, liquidation proceeds, management fees, royalties, or funds necessary to finance an investment. In addition, the scope of exceptions carved out of free transfers also vary. In some cases, the free transfer right is made effectively meaningless as an effective right, whence it is, quote, subject to the laws of the host state. Others are far more specific about exceptions. Some international investment agreements reflect a fear of the consequences should an investor engage in short-term withdrawal of funds and therefore restrict their exceptions to those circumstances. Some enable investors to transfer funds out of a host country only a year after the capital has entered. Others restrict free transfers during periods of severe balance of payment crises or external financial difficulties or other, quote, exceptional circumstances affecting a country's monetary policies or its exchange rate, close quote. As discussed in my last class, the U.S., along with many other states, particularly in the wake of the financial crisis of 2008, have expanded their exceptions to this and other international investment investor rights by including a general exception designed to protect their ability to protect the safety, soundness, or integrity of their financial institutions. Now, no one should expect arbitral tribunals faced with such different free transfer clauses to ignore these differences in text and to impose a single coherent view of what this right means. Next, we come to umbrella clauses. As the different interpretations of similarly worded MFN clauses that I've discussed indicate, different results under international investment agreements emerge not only because of different texts of these treaties. According to some estimates, as many as a thousand international investment agreements have umbrella clauses, and many are strikingly similar in what they say. Most purport to make, quote, any obligation undertaken by a state towards an investor a protected treaty right. And yet, similarly worded umbrella clauses have not yielded the same arbitral interpretations or results. For some time, Arbitral tribunals like Nobel Ventures v. Romania ruled that such clauses must be given effect, consistent with their terms, even though in that specific case the tribunal found that Romania had not actually violated its contract with the investor. But differences soon emerged among other tribunals as to whether an umbrella clause transforms a contractual dispute into a distinct treaty breach, complete with the treaty's instant access to ISDS, or whether, on the contrary, an umbrella clause merely lets an arbitral tribunal give effect to a contract, including giving effect to the original contractual terms, which may include a clause saying that the contract is only subject to dispute settlement under X, say, local courts. Under this second view, arbitrators need to respect a contract clause that anticipates enforcement only by local courts. 
Tribunals have gone in both directions. In some cases, arbitrators have resisted giving effect altogether to an umbrella clause's literal wording. Some arbitrators have decided that states could not really have meant to make, quote, any obligation between themselves and an investor the subject of a treaty breach. In the 2003 ruling in SGS v. Pakistan, an arbitral tribunal refused to give effect to the umbrella clause of the treaty between Pakistan and Switzerland. The tribunal found that bits should be interpreted in indubio mitis, that is, in deference to the sovereignty of states. It found that elevating any and all contract breaches by a state to a treaty breach would lead to a flood of international arbitration claims even when a state merely breaches a contract by missing a single payment. While SGS v. Pakistan was for a time an isolated ruling, two other tribunals, El Paso v. Argentina and Pan, America v. Pan American v. Argentina, compromised a bit. According to these cases, umbrella clauses enable investors to treat breaches of contract as a breach of treaty where the state has acted in its sovereign capacity but not where the contract breach was due to acts that are comparable to any taken by a private party. Under this public-private distinction, which, remember, is not in the treaties themselves, routine failures to pay by a state could not constitute a breach of a BITS umbrella clause and therefore open to ISDS. For these reasons, leading treatises describe the state of umbrella clause jurisprudence as in flux. Indeed, given the potential and uncertain reach of umbrella clauses, some states, like the U.S., as op have opted, as we've seen, to eliminate them in their more recent international agreements. Next, I will discuss other reasons for different outcomes across the BIT universe. Even when core investor protections among international investment agreements are textually identical, differences may emerge because each agreement may have different side agreements, such as labor or an environmental side agreement, that may affect the operation of a particular clause. In addition, treaties, including, say, the 11-member TPP-2, may have a welter of reservations or side letters that affect the content of investor rights vis-a-vis -vis the entire group of states or especially between particular state parties. These reservations, side agreements, may provide, for example, that while state A and state B accept ISDS between themselves, states B and C do not. To the extent such reservations are permitted, they may have the same effect as the USMCA. They may turn a single multilateral investment treaty into effectively different pacts among their different parties. Now, as is clear from my discussion of different investment rights, textual differences among IIAs are not the only reasons for the spaghetti bowl effect, that is, fragmentation across international investment law. Another are the differing arbitral interpretations of even identical texts. International investment law case law lacks consistency or coherency with respect to many issues. The lack of consistent case law results from a number of factors. Investor claims are heard by different arbitral panels operating under different rules. Under most international investment agreements, investors have a choice of arbitral venues or methods. 
Complaints under the U.S.-Argentina bid, for example, could be heard under ICSID, under the rules of UNCENTRAL, or by any other arbitral tribunal of the investor's choice. And as all lawyers know, procedural rules that can determine whether an award, for example, is public, or whether amicus can be heard, these procedural rules affect outcomes. In addition, even if it is true that a substantial percentage of investor state claims are presented before ICSID tribunals, which is true, even ICSID disputes are adjudicated by different three-person tribunals or panels established for purposes of hearing a particular dispute. There is no single ICSID tribunal, no permanent ICSID annulment committee. ICSID annulment committees are also separately constituted as they are needed. Different arbitrators examining even the very same FET clause in a particular bit may differ on its meaning from case to case. Although Argentina, in the wake of its economic crisis in 2001, faced over 60 investor claims, at the time the highest number of claims ever faced by a single respondent state, those claims were not consolidated into one proceeding heard by one arbitrator or set of arbitrators. They were heard by distinct arbitral tribunals with generally different members. Now, the exit secretariat made some attempt to ensure some level of consistency across those panels, particularly since many of the Argentine cases raise similar facts under the same or comparable bits. This effort, however, was uneven and did not satisfy complaints by Argentina that the resulting awards were inconsistent, particularly on the meaning and effect of Argentina's invocation of the BIT's Essential Security or Measures Not Precluded Clause. Inconsistent arbitral rulings and the fragmentation of international investment law is a leading complaint against the regime. As the Argentine government officials explained, it's hard to explain to Argentine taxpayers that a consistent rule of law is being applied in ISDS, even though the country is told one day that it faces a multi-million dollar liability to foreign investor X, while foreign investor Y's similar claim is dismissed the next day. Of course, ISDS tribunals, like all other international adjudicators and even the ICJ, are not bound to follow prior arbitral rulings, whether these are issued by ICSID or by other venues. There is no formal rule under international law requiring what common lawyers call stare decisis. While the leading source of authority cited within investor state disputes is precisely the rulings issued under ISDS in other cases, arbitrators vary a great deal in the level of respect or deference they extend to such prior arbitral rulings. Some prominent arbitrators who regularly sit on many tribunals, we call them repeat arbitrators, say that what they have a duty to do is to respect the prior rulings of their fellow arbitrators. And they say that they therefore have a duty to issue what they call jurisprudence constante. But even those arbitrators do not claim that they must follow rulings that they think were wrongly decided. Other investor state arbitrators contend, on the other hand, that their only duty is to settle the particular case before them in a way that the litigants respect. These arbitrators contend 
that they're not authorized to produce consistent or coherent law or jurisprudence constante, even if you call it in French. That is, they are not authorized, particularly if doing so would require going beyond the arguments presented by the particular litigants before them. That, they say, is not their job. As arbitrators, they are not permanent judges. An extreme version of this attitude is suggested by arbitrators who, when sitting in different tribunals, with different fellow arbitrators, join rulings that are blatantly not consistent with those that the same arbitrator issued in the past. When such arbitrators are asked why they can't seem to make their minds up and why they hold inconsistent views of the very same bit clause across cases, they sometimes say, for example, that it was simply more important to issue unanimous rulings in each case even if this means changing their written views in an attempt to find that consensus given different arbitral colleagues. They argue, and on this view, unanimous rulings that do not generate a dissent are more likely to produce voluntary compliance by a respondent state, and to them, that is more important than the production of a consistent case law across cases. So now we come to the legitimacy critiques, more generally, of this spaghetti bowl. And we've just been discussing one of them. The legitimacy critiques now directed at the international investment regime are not limited to one group of states or one side of the political spectrum. As my second lecture suggests, demands for recalibrating, if not eliminating, IIAs emerge even within states like the US, which entered into very strongly protective investor protection treaties like FCNs, and led the way in turning formerly weak European bits into powerful and effective enforcement tools for protecting foreign capital. Today, demands that investment regime be reformed, if not eliminated, come from groups within Europe as well as from states of the global south, that at the end of the Cold War originally joined hundreds of bits. Critics of the regime today include those who have long been opposed to market capitalism from the left, as well as those more newly suspicious of the virtue of trade deals, such as populists associated with right-wing political parties. For its critics, the international investment regime has been under the shadow of what you might want to see as two hydra-headed monsters. For critics of the very idea of investment agreements, these treaties are themselves abominations. They see international investment agreements as privileging an empire of capital. The larger overbearing monster in this view are precisely those overly broad international investment agreements that unnecessarily protect entities that don't need protecting and harm poor states that try to regulate them. For critics, the investment treaty regime's hydra-headed monster poses threats to income equality, to labor rights, to environmental standards, and to other public welfare goals. All of these goals are undermined by the so-called regulatory chill of international investment agreements, where legislatures avoid passing laws, where regulators avoid making regulations because of the constant threat of investor claims. The most vociferous critics want international investment agreements, 
which to them symbolize and further the rapturous greed of capitalism run amok. They want them eliminated altogether. They would urge not merely to reform international investment agreements as the U.S. has done and I've covered in my second lecture, but they would argue that states should stop negotiating these treaties altogether and they should terminate those treaties that they've concluded in the past. For those in fear of this larger monster, the very premises of international investment agreements that I presented in my first lecture in this series needs to be questioned. Some now ask whether states, rich or poor, really need treaties that grant special rights to foreign businesses, particularly multinational companies whose net worth often exceeds the gross national products of the countries in which they operate. Some challenge the very idea that foreign investors need to be protected from the bargains that they originally strike when they choose to enter a foreign state to invest. They question how often host states really take advantage of foreign investors once they sink their capital into their country, or whether foreign investors really cannot expect impartial justice from host states' local courts. Some question whether there really is such a thing as the liability of foreignness that makes foreign businesses subject to bias in local courts. Some believe that, on the contrary, foreign investors, frequently among the most powerful multinational enterprises on the planet, are not at a disadvantage before local forums, but in fact have considerable political influence and benefit from generous regulatory concessions that are even more generous than to national businesses. Some policymakers, including some economists, dispute the premise that foreign investors truly face what I've described in the first lecture as an obsolescing bargain. They ask whether states really need treaties to keep them in line. When those states that attempt to renege on those prior commitments to powerful multinational enterprises, they face serious market consequences for trying to do so. For some economists, the larger monster is the all-or-nothing content of international investment rights, which protect foreign investments on this broad definition of investment is investment without distinction, irrespective of whether a particular incoming business really makes a net benefit to economic development or otherwise benefits the local population. One problem with international investment agreements on this view is that their expansive notion of legal interests worth protecting doesn't distinguish between a foreign investor who actually employs local talent, generates positive externalities like technological spillovers, elevates the economic standing of its host country, and doesn't distinguish that investor from one that does none of those things but produces a product, say, cigarettes, that kills whomever consumes it and imposes huge social costs while doing so. For less extreme critics of the investment regime, if some investment protection agreements are needed at the margin, as say between states that really need to signal that they are open for productive external capital to come in, then they say those treaties need to contain radically different rules. On this view, international investment agreements need, for example, rules that impose duties on foreign investors and not just give them rights. For reformers of this kind, the regime can be more legitimate, morally, legally, and politically, 
if these treaties were changed to very different ones. As I will discuss, discuss shortly, UNCTAD's reform agenda addresses this larger monster, namely the world of international investment agreements. But Working Group 3 at UNCENTRAL is another favored global venue for regime reform. It has tended to focus on a smaller, hydra-headed monster at the bottom of concerns, but still very serious, ISDS. The legitimacy critiques associated with investor state arbitration come, and as I indicate in my PowerPoint, three buckets, rule of law gaps, democratic deficits, and threats to sovereign equality. The rule of law flaws of ISDS include the opportunities that this arbitral mechanism presents for investor claimant abuse in the form of foreign shopping and parallel proceedings. In the absence of changes to ISDS and their rules that would permit, for example, Argentina or other states to consolidate claims against them, there are, critics say, just too many opportunities for vexatious claims against states or even just threats to bring such claims in the hope that the threat alone will prevent regulation that a foreign investor opposes. Given the definition of eligible investor in many international investment agreements, different sets of stockholders of the very same company can individually sue a state under the same bid. That's a parallel proceeding. In addition, one company, which may have different corporate nationalities, may be able to bring claims under a host state's different bids. Under either scenario, a respondent state may face multiple claims based on the same set of facts. It may be forced to defend distinct claims before different forums under the same or different bids. The prospects of forum shopping and parallel proceedings highlight another critical complaint. Throughout, states and investors face the prospect of different outcomes. The lack of consistency in outcomes is itself, they say, a rule of law problem. To the extent investment law is, ten is intended to protect the stability of expectations on how and which property is accorded protection, it fails to provide such stability because international investment agreements are interpreted differently by different sets of arbitrators. This may occur with respect to the same clause involving the same treaty as countries like Argentina discovered. There is also criticism of how these forums approach challenges to arbitrators who may face ethical or other conflicts of interest. And another rule of law problem is that even disputes that raise highly public issues may not be heard before fully transparent arbitral proceedings, where the pleadings, the proceedings, the funding of the investors' claims are all accessible to the public. Investors may choose, in fact, arbitral forums with different degrees of transparency and different rules about accepting third party or amicus participation, for instance, precisely to protect their interests from being seen. States, in turn, may take advantage of the very same thing to conceal facts, including settlements that they may have concluded with powerful foreign investors and conceal them from the general public. Of course, Given different levels of transparency in arbitral forums, it's not always true that third parties or NGOs with a genuine interest in the proceedings will even learn of a dispute that may affect their interests until it's too late. Now, as the second column in my PowerPoint demonstrates, there are then democratic deficits raised by ISDS. These include and emerge from 
overly broad arbitral interpretations of protected investment and of investor rights generally, and overly narrow or insufficiently deferential interpretations of states' rights to regulate in the public interest. Both of these threaten decisions that are reached by any of the three branches of, say, a democracy. The shadow of ISDS and the reality of a number of its judgments threatens or undermines laws passed by duly elected legislators or regulations issued by executive branch officials. By design, including by bypassing the need to exhaust local remedies that we saw in diplomatic espousal, by design, ISDS bypasses the views of judges who are closer to the peoples that they serve. There is a perceived, then, disconnect between bottom-up democratic rule within states by legislatures and regulators and presidents and investor-state arbitrators who are perceived as dictating results from the top down. This perceived democratic deficit is made worse by the fact that investor-state arbitrators cannot take a holistic view of the merits of the cases that they see. Even though many investor state claims implicate large issues of public import, for example, whether a state can prohibit the building of a hazardous waste disposal plant, or of a nuclear reactor, or give authorization for open pit mining by a foreign investor, these are huge public issues. Even though that's true, investor state arbitrators apply and interpret only the rights of foreign investors and not their responsibilities to the communities in which they operate. A respondent state in ISDS cannot bring a counterclaim against a foreign investor unless this is directly related to the investor's underlying claim. And trust me, that claim is carefully delimited by the investor just for that reason alone. Even if the investor owes the host state billions in back taxes or for past harms done, an investor state dispute settlement can't hear that counterclaim for the most part. Arbitrators within forums charged with looking only at one side of the picture are nonetheless enabled to judge whether a state has acted fairly when it takes any regulatory action that harms a particular investor's interests. And then finally, ISDS is perceived as threatening the sovereign equality of states insofar as poorer states may be at a profound disadvantage as respondents as compared to, say, experienced and well-funded respondent states like the EU or the U.S. The U.S., for instance, has faced 18 claims under the NAFTA. It has won every one of them. The states that are most often subject to paying multi-million dollar, dollar awards under ISDS tend to be poorer states that do not have an assistant facility comparable to the one that helps disadvantaged state litigants in the WTO. Finally, the sheer cost of arbitrating, where a single investor case can cost upwards of $7 million, and the absence of limits on the scope of liability if an investor wins, where some awards against states have exceeded $100 million, these strain the budgets of nations and undermines their ability to rule. Now, reforms to address both the large monster of IIAs and perhaps the smaller monster of ISDS are being addressed in a number of places. UNCTAD, as I've mentioned, is the most prominent venue for IIA reforms. And I have a slide reproduced from UNCTAD that illustrates how that body has been surveying states' efforts to change their IIAs over time, as the U.S. has done. 
the UNCTAD, UNCTAD slide also gives states advice on best practices going forward. And so you see in UNCTAD's reform agenda for IIAs uh, that is outlined on that slide how it enumerates a number of ways that states can recalibrate their IIAs over time and also ways to introduce greater coherency and consistency within international investment law. UNCTAD suggests that one way to reduce reliance on bilateral investment standards that vary so much bilaterally is to engage multilaterally. They urge that states collectively, globally or regionally, can provide rules to govern investment that are a bit less subject to bilateral negotiations. Moreover, states can engage multilaterally even when they continue to conclude bits. If they, for example, reduce some of the differences among those bits by incorporating global standards. I noted one example of this in my prior lecture, where contemporary U.S. IIAs include cross-references to baseline protections under the intellectual property rights in the WTO. UNCTAD also encourages states to update their international investment agreements to better protect their interests. But in addition to terminate, to amend, to replace, or to jointly reinterpret their old international investment agreements and not just simply leave them in place as they mostly do today. And that PowerPoint indicates UNCTAD's Working Group 3, however, which is a separate PowerPoint, has been focused on reforming ISDS. And that Working Group 3 has seen its reform mandate increase over time. While originally the reformers in uh, Uncentral agreed to focus on ways to reform ISDS to enable greater consistency of arbitral awards, to secure more uniform rules on the selection and qualification of arbitrators, and to reduce the cost and duration of proceedings. Their current reform mandate has been expanding. The reforms on the Working Group 3's agenda are clearly designed to address some of the rule of law, democratic deficits, and sovereign equality complaints against ISDS that I have just surveyed. As the PowerPoint suggests, that group, Working Group 3, is now considering the possibility of rules that would require investors to reveal who is funding the costs of bringing their claims, that is, more transparency on third-party funding, that would have greater inclusion of soft dispute settlement approaches like mediation as a prerequisite before investors are permitted to go into ISDS that would require investors to exhaust local remedies for different periods of time before they're permitted to go to ISDS that would add an appellate process to exit arbitration to replace the more narrow annulment that would restrict shareholders access to ISDS to reduce, at least that way, the prospect of multiple or parallel proceedings, and to enable states to issue joint binding interpretations as we've seen in the NAFTA and in many other treaties as well. Also, they would have provisions that would enable expeditious disposal of frivolous claims, or provisions that would enable third parties with interest in a case to intervene more regularly or enable interested amici to file briefs, to expand the scope of counterclaims that respondent states can make against investor claimants, and to establish an advisory center to assist respondent states. 
They also include making changes to arbitral rules and codes of conduct that apply to arbitrators that would make, less, make it less difficult to challenge arbitrators who face conflicts of interest who are biased. And this is just a select list that is likely to grow as reform efforts continue. As is clear from my last lecture, some of these proposals reflect changes that the U.S. and others have already incorporated into their contemporary international investment agreements. And this includes changes that we've seen in the latest U.S. model bit in the USMCA, in the CETA, in the TPP2. Within Working Group 3, Japan and China are two states that I'm just mentioning uh, that represent those who envision keeping IS in place, ISDS in place, with or without an appellate mechanism. And they would keep it as the principal way to resolve investor state claims, however reformed we make it. But Working Group 3 is also discussing the EU's more radical proposal, namely to replace ISDS with one or more permanent multilateral investment courts. The EU's court proposal is modeled on the WTO's dispute settlement mechanism. In a separate PowerPoint, I indicate the, the essentials to this proposal, and it now exists on paper in the CETA and in the EU-Singapore and EU-Vietnam international investment agreements. The proposal consists of a standing party, panel, I'm sorry, of full-time judges selected by the states that are parties to an international investment agreement. These judges would serve six to nine-year terms. Their rulings would be subject to appeal to an appellate tribunal consisting of comparable judges serving for the same periods. Unlike exit annulment committees, the appellate tribunal would be a permanent court able to correct all mistakes of law. Permanent courts under individual international investment agreements or conceivably the creation of a single global multilateral investment court that could come into being, say, under a plurilateral agreement where states agree to its jurisdiction and to submit their disputes under existing international investment agreements to that single court. If either of those is established, this would be a big change for a regime whose dispute settlement procedures, as we've seen, borrowed from commercial arbitration between private parties. A permanent court of judges or a series of permanent courts elected by states would eliminate the ability of investors to choose one of their adjudicators, and all the court's judges would be selected by states. The EU argues that only such a permanent court or series of courts would really solve all the rule of law problems associated with ISDS. They argue that a single court of independent judges who are subject to being corrected would render more consistent interpretations of investment law, would correct the problems of multiple proceedings, and would adhere to a single set of rules more attentive to transparency, to cost, to duration, and to diversity of adjudicators. It is not yet clear whether the diverse states participating in either the UNCTAD process or the UNCENTRAL process uh, will uh, will agree on a single path forward, either with respect to the future conclusion of IIAs or with respect to the future of dispute settlement. The history of prior unsuccessful efforts to get states to agree on a single global set of rules on how best to protect alien property suggests that a single multilateral treaty is unlikely to be reached.
states are not likely to come up with uniform texts to replace the diverse substantive texts within IIAs that I surveyed in this lecture. They are not likely to come up with a single uniform definition of what is protected investment or uniform meanings once and for all for full protection and security, for FET, for national and MFN treatment, for free transfers, or for umbrella clauses. And in terms of dispute settlement, the options include continued reliance on some form of re or reformed ISDS with or without exhaustion of local remedies or a required period to attempt mediation or conciliation before, or one or more permanent investment courts issuing binding awards, or state-to-state -state arbitration as we saw way back in the Jay Treaty, or only non-binding conciliation at the international level. There is also the possibility that some or more states, like Canada, the U.S., and Australia, might return to old-fashioned diplomatic espousal for some or most investor state disputes, should their efforts to rely on their own respective local courts, as they are now doing, prove unavailing. For all of these reasons, the future of the international investment regime remains murky. The most likely outcome is that the provisions in international investment agreements will continue to differ and that disputes under such treaties will be heard in even more diverse types of forums than is the case today, when most of these investor disputes go under investor state dispute settlement. If so, the investment regime will continue to be very clearly described as a spaghetti bowl. Thank you for listening.